Well, it's wonderful to see all of you here this morning. Uh, it's a delight to, uh, to share this time with you. If you're worshiping with us online, we're, uh, we're grateful. We uh, greet you and uh, hope that you have a wonderful Christmas as you celebrate the birth of Christ. And if this is your first time with us here, we hope it is just the first of many times that you join us. We're, we're grateful. We're in this series. It's called Above All Names, and we've been exploring the names that were written and prophesied by Isaiah some 700 years before the birth of Christ. And uh, I've enjoyed the series uh, and and the study and the things that I have learned going through this. Uh, But last week, we had such a great week with our kids up here. And uh, I thought it was just awesome. I I was not just energized by what they sang and, and the message of the musical, but energized more by seeing all those children up here. And that's not the sum total of our elementary age group. That's just the ones that come to the choir practice on Wednesday night and to look down the road and to see the future and to see these kids so engaged and so committed. It uh, gives me great hope. But because of the musical, uh, we didn't have the chance to explore the second name, uh, in the series, and it is too powerful of a name to to just simply dismiss. And so this morning, I'm going to take the next two names together in this message. And, and we've been talking about the meanings of names ever since the beginning uh, of this series. Uh, on the very first Sunday, I, I mentioned to you that my name Thomas in the Aramaic means twin. What I didn't tell you, and honestly, what I didn't realize until this week was what my middle name means. My middle name is Dean, and it is an old English name that means valley, Uh, later evolved into head of a department, as in dean of a university or dean of a college or something of that nature. Tim Thompson's middle name is Roy, and while I haven't studied it deeply, I believe it's an old Scottish name that means wearer of plaid. Tim will have to verify that for us later. (laughs) We've been studying this passage for four weeks. I want you to know it by heart by the time you get to Christmas next week. So would you join me in reading it out loud again together? Ready? For to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. These names in Isaiah are like facets on a diamond. Each facet reflects a different perspective. And honestly, they build in intensity as we go through this passage. You see, one might argue that the first descriptor, wonderful counselor, whether you take that as two words or as one word, either way, you, would, you could say, well, that could be just a human being. Uh, you know, somebody could be wonderful. Somebody could be a, a good counselor. But the next two names could never apply to any human being. If this is indeed referring to the coming of the Messiah, and if indeed the government would be on his shoulders, then Messiah would have to be one who would be victorious over the hostile forces of this world. Thus the second name, Mighty God. Now I realize there are a lot of people in this world that kind of think of themselves as God, but no human qualifies. Isaiah leaves nothing to chance. 
This one who is coming, the expected one, the one whose advent we are waiting for, as Isaiah writes 700 years before, as we look back 2,000 years after, this one would come as the mighty God. Now the Hebrew word here translated mighty is found 159 times in the Old Testament and it, it seems to always refer to power. It is used in Genesis 6, speaking of the mighty men of renown. It is used of David's mighty men of valor. It can just as easily be translated as hero. So do you see the picture that Isaiah is trying to paint for us this morning? The Messiah would come in mighty power. He would be our spiritual hero. Mighty power. What's your definition of power? When you think of power, what do you think of? Well, uh, there, there are a lot of things that come to my mind. One, one of the more powerful production cars on the market today is the Bugatti Chiron. And I'm not sure if that's the way the, the last part is pronounced or not. But it comes with an 8-liter quad-turbocharged W16 engine rated at 1,479 horsepower. I, I can't even fathom that. 1,479 horsepower. I think you could get a ticket for just sitting in that car. Back during the NASA program of, of, of Apollo, when we were sending uh, crews to the moon, it was the Saturn V rocket, the most powerful rocket to date ever built, uh, that launched them into outer space. I understand that NASA is working on a new rocket that will be 20% more powerful, that will get crews to Mars someday, but still... As of today, it stands as the most powerful rocket. It employed five F-1 rocket engines, each one of which could produce more than 1.7 million pounds of thrust. Now, thrust is hard to equate into horsepower, but here's a close estimate. That's somewhere in the vicinity of 28 million horsepower per engine. At its maximum thrust, right before burnout, the engines were propelling the rocket at 1.6 miles per second into space. That is power. And, 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 and all of this was created by, by human minds. That's, that's some pretty awesome power. But what about mighty God? If we, with our finite and troubled minds, can create such cars and such rockets, what is the description of mighty God? How do we get a handle on what this means, this mighty God? You want an example of that kind of might? When the weather clears up and we got a clear sky some night, you go out and stare at the stars for a few moments. Our galaxy, the Milky Way, was believed to be 590 quadrillion miles across. That's 590 followed by 15 zeros, if you're trying to keep track of that. Or, if you're traveling at the speed of light, which is 186,000 miles per second, that's how long it'd take you to get from one edge to the other edge. Now, that's what we've thought. That's what we believed up until recently. Science has recently learned that our galaxy is likely twice the size they originally thought it was, 200,000 light years across. And here's the thing. The scope of our galaxy is but a pinprick in the vast expanse of the universe. Back in 2004, scientists pointed the Hubble telescope at a blank-looking patch of the universe near the Orion constellation. 
The Hubble telescope stayed focused on that tiny spot for 400 orbits around the Earth over 11 days. Now that tiny patch of space that the Hubble telescope was looking at would be the equivalent of me holding a grain of sand out here and staring at that grain of sand. Got the image? When, when, when NASA compiled all of the information, they discovered 10,000 galaxies that we didn't know before in that tiny space of a grain of sand held at arm's length. Today, scientists believe that our universe may have as many as 500 billion galaxies in it. And each galaxy has hundreds of millions of stars. And God created every one of those stars. And the Bible says, gave every star a name and calls them out. And the more we learn about the universe, the more we realize that it operates within the narrowest of razor's edge parameters. Author Dr. Hugh Ross writes that the universe's fine-tuning is 10 to the 43rd times more exquisite than someone blindfolded with just one try randomly picking out a single marked proton. Proton. From all the protons existing within the entire extent of the observable universe. I can't even comprehend that. Or to put it another way, he said, a billion pencils all simultaneously positioned upright in their sharp, on their sharpened points on a smooth glass surface with no surface supports. A billion pencils all at once. There's no way to fathom that. And that's just the point. You look at the, the Saturn V rocket and you think, oh, that's power. But you look at the universe and its scope and its depth, its expanse. Its, and there, the human mind cannot even take it in. Such is the handiwork of mighty God. There's nothing random or accidental about it, folks. Spoken into existence by the word of God himself. Who, by the way, according to John's gospel in chapter 1, it says the word was God and made his dwelling among us. He became flesh and made his dwelling among us. In other words, John's talking about Jesus. Jesus, before coming as our Savior, was the word of God who spoke this into existence. And you think, wow, that, now that's might. But that doesn't tell the whole story. This Jesus, mighty God, the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy, the one who gave sight to blind eyes and sound to deaf ears, who healed the sick, who restored the leper, who even raised the dead, taught us what true might and true power does. And John records it in chapter 13, on the night before Jesus went to the cross, that he and the disciples are in the upper room. The meal is done, and this is what happens. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. Did you see that? Under his power. And that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Please notice, Jesus has the power or the authority to decide what he's going to do. And one of the mightiest acts, he stooped to wash the dusty, gnarled, manure-encrusted feet of his disciples. Now, some people think this lesson is that we should be washing people's feet. That's not the point. It, the point is an act of humility. 
Hospitality in that day and time demanded that water and a towel be provided for guests to refresh their feet. But the head of the house, the one who had invited the guests to, to dinner, well, the head of the house would never stoop, never stoop to wash anybody's feet. If you had a hired hand or if you had a servant, you might command or compel them to wash the feet of the guests, but the head of the house would never do something like that. But here he is, not the head of the house, but the head of the universe, who with his disciples stoops to the most menial of tasks. I don't know what that does for you, but that makes him a hero in my book. Mighty, but humble. And we tend to want to follow the example of those who are our heroes, right? So what is it that Jesus is teaching us? What he's teaching is this. Great power is best seen in a spirit of humility and humble deeds. Great power is best seen in humble acts of servant-like spirit. Now, there's two positive attributes for us to remember out of this name, Mighty God. If he can create, sustain, and even name the galaxies and stars throughout the universe, then what, what is he incapable of handling in your life? If he can keep the universe going then he can and will keep you going if you genuinely trust in him. Now, there's the key. God's not randomly going to bless your life. You've got to come to him in a spirit of faith and trust. The psalmist writes, O Lord Almighty, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Now, now some of you may be thinking, well, if God is so busy running this vast universe, how's he going to notice somebody like me? That's easy to answer. If Jesus could notice 24 dirty feet, he'll notice you. And remember, he even washed the feet of Judas, who just in a few moments would leave that place in order to betray him. Jesus will not overlook you as he did not overlook that misstep that night. You trust him. He is mighty God. Listen to these passages. Psalm 46. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Psalm 89, O Lord God Almighty, who is like you? You are mighty, O Lord, and your faithfulness surrounds you. And you may be thinking, yeah, but those refer to God. Those don't refer to Jesus. Not so. Not so. Consider what Paul wrote about the supremacy of Christ in Colossians. In Colossians chapter 1, it says, For by him, referring to Jesus, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the glue of the universe. And if Jesus, who has power and authority over all things, can humble himself to the lowliest of tasks, then why do we continue to insist on being first? True power, true power, true greatness is the willingness to become the very least. Isn't that what Jesus said? If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, become a servant to all. True greatness and genuine might is seen in the humblest of acts, not the grandest of titles. Tony Campolo wrote, he said, when, you, when they lay you in the grave, are people going to stand around reciting fancy titles you've earned? Or are they going to stand around giving testimonies of the good things you did for others? If it ever comes down to a choice between a title or a testimony, go for the testimony. He's right. Remember what Paul wrote in Philippians. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, 
But in humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. In other words, the God of the universe became one of us so that he could wash feet and show us that the way to greatness is by willingness to do the most menial of tasks. And in his humility, he purchased our eternity. This Christmas season, this next week, look for humble ways to imitate our hero of the faith, mighty God, Jesus Christ. Now the third name is, is connected to the second name, Everlasting Father, better translated Father of Eternity, is reminiscent of the title of Alpha and Omega. By the way, the only New Testament book of prophecy is the book of Revelation. And Revelation opens in the first chapter with these words in verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Did you, do you see the connection? Everlasting Father, Almighty. Right there in the same verse. And as if to put bookends on the hopes and the promises that God has given to us. The very closing chapter of Revelation repeats this. In verse 13 it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now there are two very comforting pictures here in this next name. And the most obvious one is that of Father. Of all the names of God, this one is my favorite. Can you get a handle on this? That that. The very God of the universe, the one that is the glue that holds everything together beyond our scope of being able to imagine, allows us to call him Father. I, 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 that's just beyond my ability to fathom. God does not stand on the protocol of his greatness, but invites us into his life and relationship by being his children, calling him father. Here's the deal, folks. There's not a perfect father in this room this morning. I'm far from being a perfect father, and so is every other father in our midst. Most of us, I believe, would like to be good fathers, but imperfect as we are, we don't always make the wisest of choices, and we don't always respond in the most thoughtful of manners. And then, unfortunately, there are those who don't even try. So if you happen to grow up with a cruel or an abusive father, do not translate that to the person of God. Here's the deal. Any father who sacrifices everything to draw you to himself, that's a good father. And that is our everlasting father who gave us everything in order to draw us home to himself. But the second image is that of everlasting. And again, one of those images that just kind of is hard to grasp. I mean, we understand what it means by definition, but certainly not by experience. What, what have you ever owned that has lasted forever? Anything? That's what I thought. I don't buy ever-ready batteries anymore because they're not. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, they don't last. You'd think with a name like ever-ready, you'd never have to replace another battery. I've also stopped believing that pink bunny that beats on the drum. They don't keep going and going and going either. Uh, made me stop and think. 
Does an ever sharp always have lead? Are evergreens always green? Will the Everglades always be a swamp? Does a permanent marker ever fade? Does perpetual care ever stop caring? You see, we give these names to products that never last. They can never live up to the hype and the expectation. There is only one who deserves the title of everlasting. Psalm 90 verse 1 says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born or you brought forth the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. That's probably the oldest psalm we have in the book of Psalms. Comes from the pen of Moses who wrote this passage, I suspect, during that 40 years when the Israelites were wandering through the wilderness. Moses captured the eternal nature of God in this text as El Olam, the one who is from everlasting to everlasting. Well, batteries and ever-sharp mechanical pencils and conifer trees don't last, but God does. Now, can I tell you something? We, we don't often think about this, but if he is not from everlasting to everlasting, he can't be our God. Isaiah 40, 28 says, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. When Moses wrote in, in Psalm 90, when Isaiah wrote in chapter 40, they were looking at the eternal nature of God, and Moses knew well what he was writing about. I'm convinced that when Moses penned this psalm, he could still hear the crackle of fire in his memory and feel the heat on his face of standing before the burning bush that was not consumed and hearing the voice of God said, my name is I am that I am, which can also be translated, I will be what I will be. And then God adds this thought. He said, this is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. And you see, God is saying to us, he is saying to the people of the past, he is saying to the people of the future, I am reliable. You can count on me. Put your trust in me. I will not let you down. Hebrews 13.8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In other words, he's not going to slip in and do something that surprises you. He is who he is. I will be who I will be. I am who I am. So what does his eternal, unchangeable nature mean for us? Oh, it means his love will never fade. Where our love is fickle and sometimes grows cold, there will never be a day. There will never be a day when God says, I don't love you anymore. You may feel abandoned by a parent, a child, a spouse, or a friend, but you will never be abandoned by the God of the universe because his love is everlasting. His joy will never diminish I got to tell you, there are some days in my life that are not fun. There are some days in my life when I'm not happy. But I'm always filled with joy. See, joy is an inner gladness, a deep pleasure that, that, that tells me that even though today is a lousy day, God is still with me. And tomorrow may not be the finest day either, but God is still with me. And the day after and the day after to the point that I know that God will be with us. And he will place his joy in our hearts. You see, his joy is everlasting. 
And his grace, oh, his grace will never be insufficient. There will never come a time when God will say, you know what, that last blunder of yours, that, that big sin, can't do anything about that one. That, that's beyond the scope of my grace. That's beyond the scope of my mercy. God's grace will never be insufficient. That's what it means when we read everlasting Father. You see, God's immortality stands in contrast to our mortality every day. I don't think I've ever picked up a copy of the Herald Times and found the obituary page blank. Have you? I've never seen the headline. Good news today. No obituaries. There's always a story there. But because God is from everlasting to everlasting, our hope exceeds our own mortality. Folks, if God had a beginning or an ending, he wouldn't be God. If God had somebody that created him, then I'd want to know who that creator is. That'd be the one I'd want to worship. And then who created him? And then who created him? You you see, there's got to be a time and place where there is an uncaused event, an uncaused cause. God becomes that. He is from everlasting to everlasting. He's always been. He will always be. And if he had an ending, we'd have no hope. What if God's ending came before my ending? What am I going to do then? You see, our entire spiritual journey is wrapped up in this name, Everlasting Father. Not only is the one I can call Father and come to him in this beautiful relationship of father and child, but he's from everlasting to everlasting. He's got it covered from beginning to end to know that the immortal God who is from everlasting to everlasting was willing to experience mortality for us is to know eternal love, eternal joy, and eternal grace in the highest degree. These are also the three best demonstrations to a lost and dying world that he is God, the great I am. This week, this week, share your love, spread your joy, extend your favor, grace, and mercy so that people will see there is something more, someone more who rules and reigns in our lives. So whatever you do this week, whatever happens to you this week, remember, he is mighty God and everlasting Father. Thank you for watching this message from Sherwood Oaks Christian Church. Did you know you can view any message from the past six years at socc.org messages? You can also view complete worship services from the past month at socc.tv. 